Well, it's good to be with you all this um, drizzly morning. As many of you know, here at Vox, we value uh, diverse voices uh, to give our homily. And this morning, we're excited that one of our own members uh, will be speaking for the first time here at Vox. Uh, Gina Bastone Trevino has been an active member of our community for many, many years. Uh, she was around at Vox way back when we were experimenting with uh, intentional community homes, which was quite the experiment. Uh, and she still stayed with us all these years. Uh, she's currently on the navigation team and uh, oversees the community team. And so this morning, we're grateful that she'll be opening up the scriptures with us. Uh, so welcome, Gina. Thanks, Waylon. Um, it's really exciting to be talking to all of you today and a little nerve wracking, I'm not gonna lie. So we'll go ahead and dive in. Um, and as is our practice, I'd like us to start with an opening discussion prompt and question. So I'd like for you to think about a recent experience where you found out you were wrong um, and think about how you learned new information that shifted your perspective. So you can feel free to just think about this on your own or if you feel vulnerable and brave and want to share in the chat, go for it. So we'll take a little bit of time to think about being wrong. So one of my favorite podcasts is called You're Wrong About. And in this podcast, two journalists come together and they discuss pop culture scandals and moral panics and events from the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. And in this podcast, they often choose stories that center women who uh, are rather infamous. And they kind of look at the media portrayal of these women um, so think of people like Tanya Harding or Monica Lewinsky, Anna Nicole Smith, and they look at the way the media talked about these women at the time. And one of the things that I love about this podcast is that the hosts, they don't necessarily try to shy away from the bad stuff that maybe some of these people did, but they often look at what really happened, look at how the media portrayed the situation. And what you come out with is like a much fuller, richer picture of these people. Um, and so every time I listen to this podcast, it's I am always interested to see where I was wrong. Um, in their most recent episode, they did one on the Chicks, formerly the band called the Dixie Chicks. And they looked at what actually happened in 2003 um, when they made some statements about the Iraq war. And I remember that pretty, pretty vividly. And it turns out I had gotten some things wrong about that. Um, and I'm still a Chicks fan, still still like them. Um, and now I like them even more. But again, they were not perfect. And um, that's one of the things I like about this podcast. And one of the things that I find is that um, as I learn this new information, my narrative around these, especially these women, changes. And I realize just often how unfair the media has been to them. And so I think this is actually kind of a helpful starting point as we dive into our scripture passage. And um, so I want to go ahead and pull up the passage. Let's go ahead and take a look. Since we believe human testimony, surely we can believe the greater testimony that comes from God. And God has testified about his son. All who believe in the Son know in their hearts that this testimony is true. Those who don't believe this are actually calling God a liar because they don't believe 
what God has testified about his son. So I'm going to go ahead and admit that I was wrong about the scripture passage. When I first read this passage, I was like triggered right away by words like believe, testify, testimony, eternal life, God and his son. Like these words just took me right back to the theology of my youth where I had a literal evangelical reading of a passage like this, where the whole point was to convert other people and convince them to believe what I believe. And so I initially didn't like this passage at all because I've kind of moved away from that way of approaching the gospel and the story of Jesus. But I was also intrigued because I was thinking, what's really going on here? So I actually found, um, so I'm not a biblical scholar at all. In my day job, I'm a librarian. So I, I like finding out uh, the history of words and I like finding out, out about language, but I, I, I'm, yeah, definitely not a biblical scholar. So I read some commentaries and tried to get at some of the original Greek that was uh, Greek words that were being used here. So for the word testimony, the original Greek is actually the word matureo or maturia, and then the verb is matureo. And biblical scholars say that this word actually translates better to witness and particularly a witness in a legal sense. So I, I wanted to dig a little deeper. So I looked up uh, witness in the Oxford English Dictionary. This is arguably the definitive dictionary of modern English. And they give a ton of definitions and they so, show usage over time. Um, it's wonderful. Um, if you really want to find out what a word means. And I was struck by this um, definition for witness used as a noun to give oral or written testimony or evidence to furnish or constitute evidence or proof, to testify, witness, to bear one witness, to corroborate one statement or be a witness of one actions. So this phrase to bear witness, it really stuck with me, especially this last part to corroborate one's statement or be a witness of one's actions. And when I start to think about testimony, not as you know, the, the sense that I was used to growing up, uh, sharing your story of faith with the intention of trying to get other people to believe what you believe, but then start to shift it to this definition to corroborate one's statement or be a witness of one's actions, uh, that really changes the way I think about it. So to hammer this home a little bit more, I want to show a clip from a movie that I think is arguably one of the best representations of the American legal system brought to film. And that movie is My Cousin Vinny. Now, if you haven't seen this movie, it came out in 1992 and it stars Joe Pesci and Marissa Tomei, and they are both so great in it. Um, and, and it also stars Ralph Macchio, the kid from Karate Kid. So to, to set this up, if you haven't seen it, um, it's the story of these two young men who go on a road trip. Um, they're from Brooklyn. They're Italian and Jewish, and they're from, they're from New York. And they end up stopping in a small Alabama town where they get wrongfully arrested for a robbery and murder. And because they're college students and they're broke, they don't have a lawyer. And so, Vin, so like, Cousin Vinny comes in. 
<laughs> and and Cousin Vinny, played by Joe Pesci, much of the humor of the movie is that he's an inexperienced lawyer. He's a personal injury lawyer. He's never tried a criminal case. He's definitely not an, a defense attorney. And he doesn't know what he's doing. But at some point, he uncovers some evidence involving tire marks from a car. And he needs to call to the stand a witness who is an expert in general automotive knowledge. So he calls on his girlfriend, Mona Lisa, played by Marissa Tomei, uh, because she's worked in her father's garage. She grew up working in her dad's garage. So um, here's and she doesn't want to testify. I should also say that she does not want to testify. So uh, that's to set up this clip right here. Doing your father's garage. Tune ups, oil changes, brake relining, engine rebuilds, rebuild some trannies, rear ends. OK, OK. But does being an ex-mechanic necessarily qualify you as being an expert on tire marks? No. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> Sit down and stay there until you're told to leave. Yana, Ms. Vito's expertise is in general automotive knowledge. It is in this area that her testimony will be applicable. Now, if Mr. Trotter wishes to voir dire a witness as to the extent of her expertise in this area, I'm sure he's going to be more than satisfied. Okay. All right. All right. Now, uh, Ms. Vito, being an expert on general automotive knowledge, can you tell me what would the correct ignition timing be on a 1955 Bel Air Chevrolet with a 327 cubic inch engine and a four barrel carburetor? It's a big question. Does that mean that you can't answer it? It's a question. It's impossible to answer. Impossible because you don't know the answer. Nobody could answer that question. Your Honor, I move to disqualify Ms. Vito as an expert witness. Can you answer the question? No. It is a trick question. Why is it a trick question? Watch this. Because Chevy didn't make a 327 in 55. The 327 didn't come out till 62. And it wasn't offered in the Bel Air with a four-barrel carb till 64. However, in 1964, the correct ignition timing would be four degrees before top dead center. Well, oh, she's acceptable, Your Honor. <laughs> I got to say, it makes me laugh every time. Every time. Marissa Tomei is so great in that movie. Um... So the reason why I wanted to show this clip is because in this setup, you can tell that like old white dude prosecutor and that old white dude judge, they do not take Mona Lisa seriously. You can tell they don't, they don't, they think Vinny's being an idiot again and they don't know why she's up there. And then she just like shuts it down. I love it so much. Oh my gosh. <laughs> um, yeah, she really steals every scene she's in in that movie. But the point here is that she has to prove her credibility. And wow, does she prove her credibility. Again, I also like this in the context of how we've been thinking about shifting our perspectives and shifting our narratives, especially around people. And, and here Mona Lisa just goes and, and shows them what she knows, even though they don't expect it of her. 
And so I want you to hang on to this idea of credibility when you go back and look at this scripture passage again, because what the author of 1 John is saying to us is that God is a credible witness. And that may seem obvious, like, okay, I'm a Christian, obviously God's going to be credible. But to really think about what that means, that this is a testimony that you can trust and that God is bearing witness to things that will will give us a full and rich life. So I also want to step back a little bit and talk about the book of First John as a whole, um, because I think it's helpful to further set the stage for how we can engage with this scripture passage. So what I learned as I was reading commentaries about this book is that um, the author of First John was writing to a church community, but it wasn't so much a personal letter like we see with Paul's letters. It was more like an open statement or an op-ed, a- an essay because the community he was writing to, well, we most likely it was a he, we don't know for sure, um, was a community that was deeply divided and fractured. And they were divided over a theological issue. And what the author of First John was definitely taking aside, like saying this is the theology, like kind of addressing the theological difference. But throughout the whole thing, the author is constantly saying, you have to love each other. Ultimately, a lot of scholars will say the theme of First John is love. And some biblical scholars say about this passage where God is our witness and the testimony is his son, that ultimately love is the evidence. Love is the proof. Love is God is credible. And the evidence here is not tire marks, not automotive knowledge, but love. And so ultimately, the author of First John is trying to call this community together and bring them together despite these really deep, this really, really deep division that they have. And so I find that this is feels like a very, in some ways, resonant and timely message right now, given the kind of political and cultural climate that we're in, where it feels like we're so divided that, I don't know, like it just feels really bad. At the same time, when I hear a call to just love each other, to come together. Doesn't it feel kind of hollow? Like any calls for unity, we just need to talk to each other. We just need to understand each other, come together, compromise. It just doesn't sit right with me. And it does. It feels very hollow and shallow and easy, especially for people in positions of privilege and power who have, you know, who have less skin in the game. And so I found as I was digging into this passage And thinking about this idea of God as bearing witness, I started to see how that could actually speak to this moment where we desperately need to find common ground. But we also we also at the same time need to address harm and trauma and take accountability for the harm that we also cause. So I'd like to dig in a little bit more to this idea of how do we love from a place of hurt? So I think sometimes when we're in community together, we just end up hurting each other. And sometimes the hurt that we cause is very unintentional. And I want to share an example from my life rather recently. So if those of us who were here in Texas in February, we all remember that really terrible winter storm. And we've already had a couple of homilies in this terrible winter storm. And I have a picture. This is a picture from um, the outside of our front window. And 
you can see I have some pots and planters in the yard and the snow reached almost to the top. That's like a foot off the ground. I've never seen this much snow ever um, in the southern half of the United States. So I've lived in the Northeast. I've lived in Boston and Philadelphia, and I have family in New York and Connecticut. And, and I've had some experience with winter. I, I know what winter is like. This kind of storm with this much snow happens pretty regularly in Boston. And it was something that was hard, but you do eventually kind of get used to. And the other thing is once the roads are salted and plowed, you might have a day where you don't go into work, but then everything kind of returns to normal. If the power went off, it was probably just in one small neighborhood and it got turned back on in a couple of hours. You didn't see something where millions of people were without power on the coldest days of the year with no heat. You didn't see that happen in Massachusetts, but that is what we experienced in Texas. And it really is unlike anything, anything I've ever experienced. And it was so scary and we just didn't know what was going to happen and then the water went out and and in all my years living up north, never did I have to melt snow to flush my toilet. That was just an experience I never had. And and that was a pretty low point for me personally. And I know for, for many of my family and friends here in Texas. So as the national news stories, national news was like picking up the story of this storm, I found that my friends and family up north started texting to check in. And at first, it definitely felt like kindness, like they were coming in and, and checking in and asking me how I was doing. And then in some cases, I found I just couldn't really find the words to explain to them how bad it was. And they didn't, they just didn't get it. Some of them tried. Others kind of gave me sort of like, you know, just half-assed sympathy, like, oh, hang in there. You'll be okay. And it just, it just didn't... I felt really at the at that time like unseen and that this terrible thing my whole community and the state millions of people have been through just wasn't being understood and while that is in some ways a small stakes example I think it's one that a lot of us can relate to where when we're in community and we share our lives with other people that we come in with these traumatic experiences and we can't always find the words to share with each other and sometimes people end up hurting us just in the fact that they don't get it. And what I realized is that in experiences like this, God is bearing witness. God sees our experiences and fully understands. And it seems like from that point, maybe there can begin to be some healing. And there's something powerful about being seen and understood. Now, on the flip side... Sometimes we're the ones to cause harm, and this can be intentional or unintentional, but we also have to take accountability for that because it's if we want to really come together and love each other, we can't just say, oh, well, I'm sorry, and then pretend like nothing happened, and then because we're Christians and we're supposed to love and show grace, expect people to forgive us. Accountability actually takes work. And in my own life, I've seen how this has showed up as I've begun to really, really do the work of anti-racism. And what I will just say and own right now, and I will say, white people, I'm mostly, I'm mostly talking to y'all. Sometimes this work is really hard. And sometimes we have to look at our past actions and realize how we've, we've actually caused harm. And I know that I've done this. 
I've done this at Vox when I've gone into conversations and maybe come in defensive and not really accounting for my past actions. And then it is really work to go through and dig in and look at that and begin to try to heal from that too. And what I will say is that God bears witness to the harm that we've caused also. But we don't have to think of this as the scary guy looking over our shoulder. Instead, it's again, it's a lot like healing. But we have to be willing to do the work and we have to be open to being changed. And I admit that this, I think it's going to be a lifelong process, especially for those of us in positions of privilege and power. But I think if we do try to come together and if we begin to manifest the evidence of love, that God is bearing witness to, if we're going to do that, we have to do the work. So I want to return to our scripture passage and look at the last couple of verses where the author of 1 John is reminding us that we have eternal life, that this is also part of the testimony that God is giving to us. This is what God is witnessing for us is this eternal life. And again, like I had to take a step back because eternal life, again, kind of brings up past experiences with the theology I don't really agree with now. And I had to step back and think of what what does eternal life mean? Is it just what happens when you die? And what I learned is that it's especially in the context of this book of First John, it's a whole lot more. Um, And I actually found it's kind of exciting and and really beautiful. So we have two Greek words here with eternal life, two concepts. One is eternal, which comes from the Greek word ionos, which is, which means, um, it really means a state, uh, a state of being outside of time, which I find is kind of a heady concept. Like it it means something that's outside of our human concept of time. But what I found that was helpful was this, this concept is in contrast to the idea of seasonal, seasonality. That there are things that are temporary and they're here just for a season and then they pass. But eternal in this sense really means something that that is lasting um, and permanent and something we can count on despite whatever is going on outside or whatever is happening seasonally. And then life. Life is the word zoe, which is where we get the name Zoe. And this is a sense of life that is rich and full and accessible to us right now. So this idea of eternal life is not something we have to wait for. It's something that we can grasp and take right now. So when we find out that God is bearing witness and giving us this testimony of eternal life, and we have this evidence of love, like that's what we can embrace together. And I I think of this particularly going back to the, the context of the book of 1 John, where the author is writing to this fractured church community. And I started thinking about how hard that must have been for them to to love all these people, but then really, really disagree with them so vehemently that someone needs to write a letter and step in. Like, that must have been hard to go through. And then I realized that there's some resonance for the Vox community right now. We're in a really tough season, both in terms of this national pandemic And we as a church community made the decision that it was actually an act of love to continue our liturgy virtually, our liturgy virtually, and to do this as an act of love for each other and for our city and to just try to keep everyone safe. But 
it's been really hard. It's been hard to be part of a church, to try to build community, but have to do it over Zoom and just watch liturgy on YouTube. And, and it's been really challenging. On top of that, we've had all these transitions and all these changes. We've had two pastors leave very abruptly and suddenly, and in a way that felt a little, I think for a lot of us, you know, I was on the NAP team, so I had a little bit of insight, but I think for a lot of people, it was a little bit shocking and a little bit unexpected. And there's, it's just been a very challenging season. And now we're searching for a new pastor. And it's one of the things that has occurred to me is Vox is going to change. We're going to come back to, it's not like we're going to come back together like it was in early 2020. Our community is going to be really different. I don't know who's going to come back, who's still going to be there. I, I don't know if we'll be smaller. I don't know. And what is this new person going to do? What, how is the vibe going to change? And it's a little bit scary. But then as I started reflecting on this idea of love being the evidence that brings us together in community, that helps us overcome this division and this difficulty, I started to reflect on some examples of the way that love has shown up during the pandemic um, amongst the Vox community. So I want to tell a couple of stories. So after that terrible, terrible week in February, I started to notice that the group Austin Mutual Aid was working with people in, in apartment complexes that were kind of run down where there was a lot of need and um, where there's, yeah, it really extreme needs like apartment complexes where they still didn't have water and power even after all the snow had melted. And, and for the rest of us, things kind of went back to normal. So I just started putting on my Instagram stories, sharing these lists of items that Austin Mutual Aid was collecting. And I didn't really think much of it. And I made an offer that if anyone wanted to drop stuff off at my house, that Sam and I would take it downtown to Austin Mutual Aid. And I went for a walk because the snow had melted and I could finally go outside. And I came back and this picture was what was outside my front door. I was so blown away uh, because I really didn't think, I thought maybe I'd get a couple rolls of toilet paper or something to take downtown. And then Rachel and Carol came over and brought all this stuff. And I was just like, oh my God, <laughs> like I just, I couldn't believe it. And um, I, it was just like such a sweet moment. And I, I don't even think they thought much of it either, but it was just this little moment of love that showed up. Another recent example is that um, Constance, and I think Constance does this kind of thing all the time, um, organized a fundraiser for uh survivors of the really terrible civil war in Myanmar. And she worked with the Burmese community in Austin to set up this fundraiser. And Karen invited me. And again, I didn't really know what to expect. I had just been um, fully vaccinated and I was kind of ready to maybe go out and be around people again. And I just say, you can see from this picture, it was like such a beautiful day at spring day. And then there were people gathering and it was outside and it was pretty distanced and most people were wearing masks and, and I felt pretty safe. And it was just like, and then we ran into other people from Vox. I saw Lena and Josh there and then Carol and Rachel had come earlier and they got more food because they, <laughs> this event was so successful. They ran out of food, but it was just so nice to see other people from Vox and to see people from Vox organize something like this and, and to come together and have some moment of community um, and eat some really amazing food. Um, I never had Burmese food before and it was, it was so, it was so great. It was such a wonderful day. And then the final example, um, is from our Vesper art show for Easter 
David Salinas designed this logo for the art show. And then he and his family graciously decided to print the image on bandanas to give to our community. And I remember because I helped out with the community team putting these Easter bags together. And we were just, I just the whole time, every time I folded a bandana, I just kept thinking like, this is kind of amazing. They just did this. No one asked them. They did this on their own. They just wanted to do something to, for our community and to help us through this rough time. And like, even now, every time I look at that bandana, I just, it just brings a smile to my face because again, it's a like a little, a little example of this evidence of love. And I think of all of these things, and I don't know that when we organized them or we did them that we were really thinking intentionally, like, this is eternal life, but this is eternal life. Like, this is what it is. So practice for this week is that I would encourage you to take stock of your life right now and particularly your interactions with the Vox community and reflect on where you've seen the evidence of love. Think about where maybe you've shown up for each other in the last few months. Maybe there was a meal train after you had a baby or a bad injury. Maybe it was seeing your midweek group on Zoom every week. Um, maybe it was just a car to a friend from Vox just to say hi and, and brighten their day. So even though we can't be physically together, think about the ways that our community has shown up. I'd also like for you to think about where you can bear witness for each other too, because that is part of this story of eternal life, that it's also accounting for the harm and the hurt. So to close, I'd like to leave you with a passage from this book called Undrowned, Black Feminist Lessons for Marine Mammals. It's by an author named Alexis Pauline Gums. If it sounds strange, it is. One thing I love about Alexis Pauline Gums's writing is that she writes from her, her experience as a Black queer feminist and how that often places her in the category of other. And she writes from this place of otherness and strangeness that allows for like a beautiful creativity to imagine the world in new ways, a kinder world, a more inclusive world. And yeah, it's a little strange. It is because we don't have it right now. And in Undrowned, she started writing these meditations after she visited an aquarium and she started learning about marine mammals. And what she found as she was studying dolphins and whales, sea lions, is that they're actually a lot like us. They're highly intelligent and they're very, very social. And in this meditation I'm about to share, She's reflecting on what she's learned about Pacific white-sided dolphins. These dolphins live in huge schools and they have pods within the schools. And what scientists have observed is that even within those pods, there's always a group of like five to 10 dolphins who hang out together. And they know that they're, they're kind of like a little click because they're all really scarred. They have all these scars. And scientists aren't 100% sure where they get these scars from. Probably predators, uh, human interventions like fishing, probably fishing nets and other ways that we've harmed them. And then they also think they might actually get some of these scars from fighting each other. And yet they still decide to hang around, to hang out with each other. So from this point, Alexa Pauling Gums had this meditation 
on reflecting about these dolphins who are scarred, possibly from each other. And this is what she has to say. I wonder why sometimes we congregate with those who have been hurt in ways that look similar to how we have been hurt. About how we sometimes, me too, name identities and even whole organizations based on our scars. And how sometimes those of us with similar vulnerabilities are the ones who scar each other. Another thing, the scars on dolphins and whales also tell the would-be benefactors who they are. It is how observing scientists tell them apart. It is useful for getting an accurate count for tracking behavior across expeditions. A dolphin with scars is more likely to be known, recognized, named by watchers, mentioned in funding reports. Do I do that too? Are my wounds the most convenient ways for you to know me? Why do they shape up so much of how I know myself? And the whole dynamic of recognition, how does it shape and scar us? What I know is that I was not wrong when I chose to hold you close and stay in range. I knew, I always knew we were still healing. And you could see right away that I was not perfect. You could see some picture of what the world had done. And yet what has been done, though still not over, is not the end. And your scars are not all I know about you. And my scars are not all I want you to know. And your name is made of where life makes itself me. And your name is medicine over my skin. And our kinship is the kind of solve that heals whole oceans. And love is where I know and do not know you. And love is where we began and where we begin. So in the name of God, our creator, Jesus, our redeemer, and the spirit who bears witness. Amen.